0: But yeah, I say in the introduction to this episode that we're going to talk about a bunch of things and then also talk about the history of vampires as a literary type. We didn't get around to recording that second part yet, so that's going to be shunted to the second part, which will be all vampire focused, might still end up being split into two different um, episodes. We'll see how that goes. Um, but yes, ignore anything I say in the introduction about us talking about vampires in this episode. we sort of like the um, Lords and Ladies episode. We're talking about everything else in this part, and then in the later parts, we're going going to go in real deep on vampires also sorry for the uh, patchy audio quality the, in terms of actual sound i don't think it's too bad but it has been stitched together igor style from two different recordings and i've had to go in and cut bits and and yeah try and balance it all so i think it's okay but yes compromised recording uh situations and time and everything means that this doesn't quite sound as good nor contain as much as i wanted it to um but here it is our patrons have had this episode for a week now. I think in the outro it still says you get it a month in advance. We're thinking about retooling that. It's probably gonna be a week in advance from now on. But yes, if you do want to get these episodes early and get the second part as soon as it comes out, do sign up there at patreon.com drprometheuspod or otherwise wait until um we have time to do it all, I guess. Hopefully we'll be able to record it and have it out soon, but we'll see how we go. Anyway, enjoy the show. What's DiscWorld? What's Discworld? Podcast analysis, yeah. So I'm Josh and I'm Alice and we are the Unseen Academicals. Correct. And today we are back uh, to talk about the final Witcher's book, the sixth book oh, in this the Witcher series. Awesome. Well, there's the Tiffany Aching ones, but we're going to do them in four years. Mm. Yeah, we're going to do them right at the end. This is the final of the like Granny Weatherwax, Magrat, although she's not really in it. Well, she's wow. in this one. She wasn't in the last one, but that. These books, before they become the Tiffany Aching ones, are the 23rd book in the Discworld series overall, so we're about halfway through the series at this point. Mm. Yeah, so Carpet Juggalum, wherein the Lunkra witches must defend their kingdom from a malicious family of uberwoldy and vampires while in the midst of multiple identity crises. And in this episode, we are going to use the book to explore uh, the concept of the Triple Goddess, which we'll be revisiting, uh, magpies, landscapes, uh, concepts of modernization and progress. And the history of the vampire as a literary type, among other things. Um, Alice, in honour of the RuPaul's Drag Race recap podcast for the final time in the Witcher series would you please name some number of things <laughs> that you like and some number of uh, things that you did not about Carpa Jugulum*?
1: Okay. Okay. No, no, I'm on the spot. Um, yeah, I, I have
0: just sprung this on Alice because we're in the middle of a power <laughs> <laughs> And I have no electricity, so oh I'm gosh. sheltering. Josh has
1: been in my house all day while I've yes. been working.
0: I left my microphone at home, hence the early unseen academical sound quality. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Right, we're going back to a year ago.
1: Okay. Two things I liked. I liked Igor.
0: Okay, yep. So that cool. that
1: allowed? Igor was fun. I always liked Grebo, um, and he was back, and oh, it was funny. Yeah. Can I just say it was funny? Gra- it was funny. Granny was good. Granny yeah. was
0: good. I think Nanny's the standout funny yeah. one in this. Really All her um, comments about the, uh, <laughs> what's his name? Oates, the priest. Yeah,
1: I yeah. did like it. I liked Oats. What didn't I like? Hmm. I feel like we're going to get into it when we talk about the Byron stuff. Um, as in, like, I liked it, but it wasn't Byron enough, you know? Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm like, do more. Yeah, I liked it.
0: Okay, so you just liked the book? I think
1: so. I think I just liked this. Oh, this is
0: good, especially after last week. Yeah,
1: last week was awful. How are
0: you, like, roughly compared to the other books? Because this is um, this is probably my favorite. favorite.
1: Oh, really? Yeah, Yeah. I still like obviously witches abroad. That was very fun, and lords and ladies Mm -hmm. was very fun. But this was my favorite book to read. Like, I was telling people I was busy, so I could read the book. Right. Yeah, that's where we're
0: at. Yeah. Okay. Because yeah, this is my partner Maddie's favorite Discord book, which is every time I ask her like why, it's just like because vampires are cool. Vampires are cool. As as I'm discovering.
1: Josh has been on an awakening.
0: Yeah, me. we'll get there. <laughs> um but it's one that's yeah, it's never really stuck with me. I've never disliked it. Well actually I did dislike it when I did the um big like reread really? like I was saying I went through them all for this. I really didn't like this book. Oh. Or initially, when I reread it, the thing I was going to say the one thing I like about this book is the first half of the book, and the one thing I don't like about this book is the second That's half. Fair. Of the book.
1: That's fair. That's fair. The first that was, half is better.
0: Right. But then I did reread it, like in between mm-hmm. when we did Masquerade and this one now, and I really liked it the second time, which is because I've gone and done all this vampire research and I'm getting a bit more of a take. But also, just some of the problems I thought I had mm-hmm. with it the first time weren't as much. I, I think I wasn't really engaging with it properly the first time. Mm-hmm. For me, it's probably still, you know, midway. This mm. is on the um, Lords and Ladies and and Equal Rights would be the two for me. And then this is probably in the middle with Witches okay. Abroad. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think it's cool. I think there's some cool vampire stuff going on as we will get to at length. As for specific things I liked and didn't like about the book, um, I have one thing I liked. And even though, yes, I have said, I I like this book overall in terms of picking things. There's lots of little things about it. Mm, There's lots of
1: little things, yeah.
0: Yeah, Yeah. I have one thing, well, they're they're called the Knack McFiegel...
1: Ah yes.
0: (laughs) Um, But one thing that I I really like about this book is Granny's crisis of confidence. Yeah, I love seeing like the bit at the start when she's all annoyed because they didn't invite her to the wedding and she. Yeah, but that that is very relatable. They (laughs) Um, didn't want
1: her. Yeah, and
0: and storming off to be like, fine if they don't need me. It
1: was very Josh, actually. Now I think about it. Yeah. (laughs) um,
0: Yes, what we've discovered is that Granny is a messy bitch who lives for drama. So, yes, I I really like that as the premise. I don't know if they quite, or they, Pratchett, quite nails the resolution on that. But all the granny stuff up until they find her lying in the cave, I think is like pretty good, a pretty, yeah, good character development stuff. Mm. As for now, I have a, a longer list of things I don't, I dislike, but they're not like book breaking things. They're just like little things where I'm like, oh, I don't know about okay, that. Okay,
1: that's true. Because you've read it six times and I've read
0: it once. So <laughs> I think I've read this one, yeah, three or four in
1: times. In the last week and a half, folks. So
0: <laughs> <laughs> You have read I have not read I've it six read, times yeah, in the last week.
1: I've read it once in the last week yes, and a half. okay. Yeah.
0: One of the things I don't like the magpies. Mm. I don't get it. It's annoying. It just seems like something that should be ordered in there. Okay. Yeah, I think it's a. I think it's an English thing. But even then, I'm not sure. One
1: for sorry. Uh, another yeah. thing
0: I don't like is uh, which we already mentioned the Naacmfigal.
1: Really.
0: Well, only because I don't get them. Well, they're Scottish.
1: Yeah. Um,
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, but they they become like a whole thing in the the Tiffany Aching books. Right. You yeah. 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 Okay. Very
1: good. Um, and
0: they work really well there. So it's not that I don't like them, but. It's that they don't really belong in this book. Going back to it after having done that, it would have made more sense to just introduce them there because they're from this other place. And they're and their characterization in this book is very different from their characterization in the Tiffany Aching book. So they're different clans. And this is like... Pratchett writes that book, uh, writes the We Free Men. Yeah. When's that? We Free Men is 2003. This book is 19... I didn't say it at the start. I think this book is 1997. Okay. Is that right? No, 1998. So yeah, like five years later... Like, obviously, he had this idea and he put him in there because he didn't know he was going to write this other book later. But I just think because they went on to be such a big part of the Tiffany Aking series, they don't really work here. And they do seem to be just like this weird minor side plot that I don't really know what they're doing there. Mm. Um, I kind of dislike the sidelining of Nanny and Magrat and Agnes Yeah, in terms of it does – it's this is meant to be – I said I like the premise about Granny's crisis of confidence – but then it does just become about Granny Saving the Day. It sort of undermines that.
1: Yeah. yeah. And,
0: like, Nanny, Magrat, and Agnes all get sent off to a different kingdom to not deal with Lunker anymore. So I sort of... I didn't like that. And one thing I thought I disliked that I come around on is initially didn't like that there was no Grebo. But he was there. Right. He was but He was in wasn't. the coffin. He was in the coffin. He
1: was in the coffin. Yeah. It so it So I like
0: that he's in the coffin. But... He's like, I'll be in here, guys. It annoyed me because why don't you have Grebo there? Yeah. Because he's been a character in the last few books. Or he wasn't in Laws and Ladies, but he was in Masquerade. He was a huge part of Masquerade. And also, in Witches Abroad, he kills a vampire.
1: Yeah. Yeah, he eats the vampire
0: So I'm like, hang on, the vampires are coming. Let's go get our vampire-eating cat and set him loose. And he's just not in in the the story.
1: Maybe he's playing the long game.
0: Well, yes, but then on the, on the reread, I, I uh, oh, he's been sleeping in the coffin the entire time and kills the vampire, so I thought yeah. it was a good way of having Grebo not there. Yeah. So that's one I kind of like. Um, but that's what we think about it, unless you have anything more no. to add in the general discussion part. No, it's a good book. No. And we're not the only ones that like it, because this is the third Witch's book that Andrew M. Butler gives five out of five in his pocket guide. You would say well-deserved in this case? I would, Yeah. I don't. I don't think it's a five out of five. Oh. Well, just because of that, like the sidelining of Nanny and McGrath and stuff, I don't think it's quite there. I think on first reading, I would have given it a three, and on second reading, four, maybe four and a half. Okay. Yes, that's that's where I'd go. Um, but yeah, Butler says so he gives it a five out of five, and he says that not since Small Gods or Lords and Ladies has Pratchett dealt with such palpable evil, an evil which blurs the edges of what is seen as moral. <laughs> And I think that's that's fair. The vampires are pretty malicious villains. We do have the um, werewolves who show up in uh, the fifth, the fifth elephant, mm. which is quite similar to this book. And I think it's only a few later, but they're just sort of. Um, what's the word, like sociopathic, amoral, whereas yeah. the vampires, I think, are quite...
1: Immoral. Yes. Yeah, they've made a choice.
0: Um, so I would say, yeah, these are maybe apart from the um, the elves in Lords and Ladies, and I would say not until the Cunning Man in Shall where Midnight, 15 books later, does Pratchett really hit upon such an evil villain again. Hmm. Um, other reviews were generally positive. There was nothing worth writing about them. They were just like, yeah, this is a good book. I don't know if we're, if I'm going to be keep doing the... Um, critical reception stuff, because there's normally just not that much interesting to say. I was wondering
1: if, like, this was included in lots of books on vampires? Like, is this part of the... Not at all. Right. This is your whole thing, then. This is where you come in. We will get... Nobody do Josh's article.
0: So, uh, no one do my article. (laughs) sit down. But um, I have sort of forged ahead without saying what we're going to do here. This is going to be a two-parter.
1: If we're lucky. But, yeah,
0: potentially a (laughs) three-parter, though... Well, okay. So the first part that we're doing right now, which is also going to be a two-parter of a one-parter because I've only written half of it because I don't have any power. Um, here we're going to talk about some general things in the book and then um, go into the history of vampires as a literary type and their origin in the, in the literary tradition and development there. Then for the second part, we're going in, because I've read all the vampire books. All of them. At least 60. And we are going to sort of break down the different tropes and see how they have changed. So things like garlic and sunlight and stuff like that, the specific treatments of things. That will be an entire second episode that we'll go through. So we're not really going to talk about the um, vampire things. I'm, I'm thinking about it as... Vampires as a literary type and vampires as an ontological type, if I can use my big words. So, oh. yes, what how vampires have been written and what vampires are. They're the two episodes. Then there will per- perhaps be a third episode that it might be a quasi-bonus episode about uh, vegetarian vampires, right. which aren't really in this book but are enough that I can uh go off about them because this is something that has been bubbling away in my mind for a while and we also may have a special guest for that one i'm not sure we'll really? work that out really so this will probably yeah see us through to the end of the year and we'll do a wrap-up episode and then start with the death books in the new year because Alice and i are busy oh, so busy i uh, am. <laughs> even i'm working multiple jobs at this point yeah a yeah. like team your question as to, um, yeah, do vampire does this show up in, in vampire critical discussion? So, yes, I've spent the last couple of months reading all the vampire books, hmm. watching all the vampire movies, hmm. um, and reading all the vampire scholarships. so into
1: blood right now. I have
0: not seen Carpajugnian mentioned in a single work of secondary vampire criticism.
1: Interesting.
0: Not even as, oh, there's this book, um, as Masquerade, and, oh, actually Masquerade Is didn't Is that because mention. of
1: perhaps, like, genre prejudice and things like that, or people just don't know it's there, or people don't... People who are doing that don't necessarily repracture it or...
0: Well, I think the the vampire thing, and we will get to this more in, well, in this episode eventually when I write it, that vampire scholarship is interested in, like, these different phases and there's, like, the the 19th century stuff, the the Byronic stuff, the origins and everything and then you get, like, Dracula stuff and how that's played with in the 20th century um, and then it becomes this young adult moving into a romantic sort of thing Mm. where we're at now and they're the different phases and Copper Juggling doesn't really fit into any of those neatly. Because um, another thing that's kind of weird about um, Copper Juggling, and there are a few other examples, but most vampire fiction is set in the real world, right? It's urban fantasy. Interesting. Whereas Interesting. Carpet Jugulum is an example of vampires in a fantasy world, which is quite... Which, like,
1: still is a thing, but people tend not to talk about it as much.
0: Well, it's not as much of a thing as you think, or it definitely just wasn't... About
1: all the lit I read as a teenager, I guess.
0: Right, but yeah. that was probably all written after Carpet Juggulum. Um, Sunshine by Robin McKinley from 2003, which is the next on my list to read. I haven't actually read this yet. That is a fantasy one that seems to have a bit of a reputation. But yes, normally it's a... The vampires are set in the real world, so it's it's... The whole trope, like, as we're going to talk about, like, Dracula is what if the old world came to the new world. Yeah. So, when you take that theme out of it, it's quite a different mode of themes that it's dealing with. But also, so Pratchett doesn't really fit into any of these categories neatly. And is also, like, right on the cusp of the end of the 20th century sympathetic vampire thing and the beginning Mm. of the modern romantic beloved vampire thing. So, I think it's a matter of timing and fantasy genre stuff yeah so there, there's a number of reasons why Pratchett doesn't really neatly fit in but again I haven't even mentioned it like Lords and Ladies didn't get a whole lot of critical attention but there was still like Stop. oh and here when we're talking about Midsummer Night's Dream they would mention Pratchett wrote a book about it yeah not a single mention of Carpe Jugglem in right. Vampire Literature so I'm gonna write one
1: yeah do that
0: I'll try Oh, yeah, back to, to review. So I think I'm going to take the review section out just in general. We might we might still talk about um, what Andrew, Andrew and Butler, his rankings and stuff, because I think they're fun to follow along with. But I haven't found anything interesting in the secondary reviews, and they're hard to find, and I don't really care. Um, so unless I find anything particularly interesting, we might drop them. Um, Something I'm pretty sure I found in a review and then didn't write down and haven't been able to find is I think there was a reviewer. And if I ever have enough time to do the transcript for this, I will put the note in there when I find it. Someone somewhere was making a snarky comment about how Carpa Jugulum, which is seize the throat um, or go for the throat, which uh, Maddie used to have written on her uh, fencing mask. Yeah, <laughs> it's pretty good. Um, but although ironically, it was my trademark move to stab people in the throat. She would jump around and smack them on the back of the head. But, yeah, someone somewhere was pointing out that cover juggling isn't actually like correct uh, Latin. I'll piss off. Right. Um, but also, Is that the
1: response you wanted. Yes. Yeah. Okay. But
0: also, incidentally, uh, Pratchett has stumbled upon something that connects to the vampire tradition in doing this. Because in the 1958 Hammer Horror film Dracula, um, or Horror of Dracula, which has Peter Cushing, who's Grand Moff Tarkin from Star Wars, as Van Helsing, and Christopher Lee, who you may know as Saruman, um, as Dracula, and I think is probably the best of the uh, Mm. campy, like, old Dracula movies. It's definitely better than the Universal ones, which, yeah, they're a bit of a slog. But Dracula's family crest is shown, bearing the Latin motto, Fidelis et Morton. So I wanted to find out what this meant. Uh, Yes, so I hunted down the uh, translation of this family crest, and I found a 2014 blog post titled Making Sense of Dracula's Family Motto by University of Leeds lecturer Penelope Goodman, uh, where they attempted to translate the motto. And as they point out, in a feature called The Demon Lover from the 2013 DVD or Blu-ray release of um, Horror of Dracula, vampire scholar Christopher Frayling translates the motto as Faithful and Dead, with that translation also being repeated by film art historians Marcus Hearn and... Uh, Jonathan Rigby on the DVD's commentary track so this is sort of the official line of of what it translates as however as Goodman points out mortem is a noun uh, not an adjective and therefore means death Mm. not dead which combined with the Latin word order makes the motto and death faithful rather than faithful and death it's it's actually as it's written it's and death faithful Which, as Goodman points out, is a bit meaningless. (laughs) Um, And Goodman says it was likely that they were aiming at something more like Fidelis Ad Mortem, which is perfectly good Latin and means faithful unto death, which is also the motto of the New York City Police Department. All right. But this is all to say that within the Dracula tradition, the vampire tradition, there is at least one significant instance of an incorrectly um, <laughs> phrased Latin. title. Right. Uh, so yeah, yeah, I think I practice is doing a pun on, on um, Carpe Diem. Yeah, I, oh, there's yeah, no yeah, way that. you would do yeah, this. Yeah yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: But then I thought maybe you were going to argue that he did it because he knew about that. Oh, no. Yeah, I was like, well, I, really? No, I don't
0: think so. But okay. I think it's a, yeah, a, a coincidence that that actually lines up with something. So I thought that was interesting. But yeah, something more significant and definitely deliberate uh, to Carpe Jugulum is... The treatment of this triple goddess archetype that we were talking about last episode on Masquerade. And weirdly enough, this idea of the triple goddess, the virgin, the mother, and the crone, again, incidentally, ties in with Dracula and the vampire tradition. Because the earliest of Bram Stoker's notes um, for writing Dracula, which you can get, there's a book of them, is the scene with Dracula's three wives, right, the three vampire women... Uh, with a deleted passage in the typescript comparing them to the three witches in Macbeth. Nice. Jonathan Harker, right, the guy they're attacking, the narrator in that section of mm. Dracula, uh, remarking, For I feared to see those weird sisters. How right was Shakespeare. No one would believe that after 300 years one could see in this vastness of Europe the counterpart of the witches of Macbeth. Mm. So yes, again, incidentally, by combining witches and, and vampires, we got, we got some nod to the conception of, of vampires themselves. Nice. The editors of Stoker's Notes also claim that in contrast to the weird sisters in Dracula's castle, Lucy and Mina in, in Dracula, right? the two girls that Dracula comes and, and vampirises, mm. are the virgins and treasures of Bram Stoker's macabre fairy tale. I don't know what that means, but it does set us up for our first aspect of the uh, Triple Goddess that we want to talk about, which is the Virgin. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, you know, probably the most pertinent to vampires as well, because... As everybody knows, because everyone knows things about vampires, vampires are always after virgins on their wedding night. And I think this goes back to that idea of the stages being like the energy giving, right? Mm. You're a virgin on your wedding night. You're expected to not be a virgin anymore. So you get your power and your energy taken by the patriarchy vampires.
1: Vampires yes vampires want the energy vampires want to undermine the patriarchy by taking their
0: energy no vampires are the patriarchy Okay.
1: okay if the vampire didn't come the patriarchy would still take the virgin's energy
0: well yes okay but it's like evil patriarchy all right Mm. Yeah, as opposed to normal, not equal patriarchy. I mean, from Stoker's point of view, right? Oh, from, Jonathan okay. Harker is the good patriarchy. I mean, it's it's racism. Yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> the yeah, yeah, colonial patriarchy yeah. versus the oh. yeah. Um, right. But sure, I mean that that's pretty clear symbolism because, like, weirdly, until Byron, mm-hmm. vampires are mostly female, right? Mm-hmm. They're these succubus-like ghost apparitions that um, come and and yeah, take people's blood in the night and then. Byron and Dracula really cement male vampires as the archetype, and through Dracula specifically, as we will go into all of this in painstaking detail later. Painstaking? Huh? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Dracula stands for a lot of things, but one of the things he pretty clearly stands for is it's it's men and women, right? Mm. Women are the victims; the the male is the oppressor, and that is pretty consistent until about the nineties.
1: It's interesting because it's a variation on the gothic theme, you know, of like the innocent virgin woman being toyed with by the gothic villain. Because like this, we're going to talk about this is the variation on the gothic, isn't it? So it's just Dracula
0: is. Let's. Ham that villain. yeah, but
1: like you know, you get you get Radcliffe and the monk and everything, and then Dracula comes in the nineteenth century, you know. So it's like it's yeah, the next iteration, I guess, in gothic villains, and it's more dreadful.
0: A penny dreadful. (laughs) 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 Strap yourselves in.
1: Ah, he's been preparing
0: these for months. I haven't. You have. I'm coming up with them right now. He's
1: sending them in messages. I haven't. You have.
0: Penny dreadful.
1: Well, other, other
0: painstaking. Hugs. Most of them are one i ones I have found in other vampire books. Right. Like when Vampirella knows Dracarati. Isn't that good? <laughs> uh, so in his 1928 English translation of the Melius Mullerfucarum, mm. the British, um, the
1: Witch's Hammer,
0: the Witch's Hammer, which we've talked about, the British clergyman Montague Summers wrote: Select a young lad who is a pure maiden, put him on a young stallion who has not mounted his first mare. Oh. Coal black without a speck of white. Riding to a cemetery in and out among the graves. And if there is one that the horse refuses to pass, that is where the vampire lies. So. What if
1: the horse is just picky?
0: <laughs> well, this is um, male, human and uh, horse virgins being used to detect vampires. Holy moly. But it also recalls, right, the idea that the virgin is the only one who tame the unicorn. Mm. Which was Granny's role in Lords and Ladies. Which... I think I said in the lead up to this, oh, there's a lot of stuff in Jugum that sort of undermines this idea of Granny as, as the virgin crone. Yeah. Um, but I think I was getting it all mixed up because it's really the intimation that she's a virgin comes from *Lords and Ladies*.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, but I still think it's there as we'll yeah talk
1: yeah. I was, when I was reading it, I'm like, oh, like this one, it does, it's implied. Yeah. yeah.
0: And I, and I think there's something to that in that Granny is so powerful because she is a crone who has not had her energy sucked. Yeah. By. <laughs> um, <laughs> by the patriarchy, by losing her maidenhood. But then there's something there that plays into these ideas of, like, like vampire stuff is, well, don't, don't sleep around because you'll lose your purity, mm. right? That's the Carmilla stuff, you know, um, don't experiment sexually. Mm. Otherwise, you'll lose your purity. So there's something about um, Granny that, like, is subverting this trope that she's the virgin crone, but is also reinforcing these kind of, I don't want to say prudish, but
1: mm. puritanical... <laughs> Um, um, traditional?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Notions of sexual purity. That the part of the reason why Granny is so powerful is that she never gave into sexual temptation. Yeah. Or, you know, was too busy. But. Busy. I'd
1: say she was busy and had other things
0: on. But there's something there in that she is able to defeat the vampire because she never gave into temptation. Mm. Mm. Um, so Jennifer Jill Fellows provides a Kantian anal- analysis, a analysis of Granny's philosophy of not treating people as objects and ah, ends in themselves, yeah. right? We're not talking about that. But in that analysis, um, Fellow says that weatherwax women have always had one foot in shadows. It's in the blood. And most of their power comes from denying it. Um, and continues that Granny Weatherwax's power comes from self-denial, from not giving in to what she wants to do, and instead holding fast what she ought to do. Um, so there's a couple of things here. One is that emphasis of wants and oughts, which are written in italics. So, our Fellows is emphasizing these. So, if we apply that to the virgin thing, right, she wants to have sex, but she ought not to. Not to. Um, so, there is that implication. But also, there is um, the idea of it being in the blood, that there's also this heritage angle, which we've mentioned a couple of times, but here's where you get it, right? You get the familial con- connection to Black Alice you get the idea of Granny's blood itself being powerful mm. in contrast to everything that was sort of undone and subverted in Equal Rights where yeah. this series starts.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, so you know Pratchett's not saying it's all biology or heritage and that the people who don't have that heritage can't be one. I mean the reason the reason Esk was so powerful was because of her heritage. Mm. So there's something going on there with the natural disposition, natural inclination which of course goes into the vampire stuff which we'll talk more about in part two yep. but vampires are so powerful or behave in certain ways because of their lineage and maybe so do witches yeah yeah i see the connection
1: there
0: um so yes granny is sort of a you know amalgamation of everything right she's the the virgin perfect mix chrome. uh yeah she's a virgin chrome. Powered
1: by blood and bloodline.
0: she's got all of it Um, But yes, she, in terms of the triple goddess, she represents the virgin crone, which uh, this is something Pratchett does, especially in this book, is mix these three um, roles, which, or in the other books, the witches have been signed pretty specific roles. Here he's pretty specifically uh, blurring them. So, in her 2008 article, Nice, Good, or All Right, Jenny Brennan Croft argues that Granny combines all three aspects of the triple goddess in one, with Nanny herself observing in the text that Granny was a maiden as Far as Nanny knew, and she was at least in the right age bracket for a crone. And as for the third, well, cross granny weatherwax on a bad day and you'd be like a blossom in the forest. <laughs> well, that's from Masquerade. I don't actually know what that last bit means. No, I think the implication is that, like, you she's stern. Will, so you'd
1: be, yeah, you'd, that'd be the end. You're of in that. trouble? Yeah. Which yeah. is that, like. A blossom in a frost? Yeah, you're done for.
0: But is that. Granny's entire claim to motherhood is that you're in trouble if you cross her.
1: Yeah, that's fair. She's kind of, like, mothery to ask, but the whole premise is that she's granny. With the she's wax.
0: granny to ask, but yeah. she's
1: she is, like, maternal qualities through granny. Like, through being a granny. I don't know, I'm just, like, spitballing yeah. here, but that's all I, I've got, really. There and is... she, I guess you could say she kind of, like, maternally mentors the others in a weird fucked up way. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's all i
0: got. I mean, they are called Granny and Nanny. Yeah. They're it's a nanny. Nanny, I guess you can be a nanny in raising children. All right, I get that. Yeah, I don't know if Granny Weatherwax is really a, a mother. Hmm. I, I definitely see the, she's a virgin crone.
1: Because you're right, nanny is more motherly towards McGrath and the others. Yes. Yeah, and I guess Granny is more of a mentor, and like there are maternal qualities, but not as much as Nanny.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm not sure. It's there, but, like, not as much. So I'm not sure about that. In The Discworld Companion, Pratchett and Briggs state mm-hmm. that celibacy has no physical effect on magical ability and has no relevance to the magical art. Otherwise, Nanny Og would be a washerwoman. Or, or she would be, be as, as powerful well as Granny. Granny, right? The reason why Nanny is not as powerful as Granny, apart from her lineage, is she that
1: she had a lot of sex.
0: She got it on. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Nanny. Yeah.
1: I do like when McGrath comes in and goes, I get all the jokes now. And Nanny's like, even the blah, blah, blah. And she's like, oh, I didn't get that till I was 36 or something. That's good.
0: Um, but as Nanny explains to Agnes in Carpe Jugulum, she says that ain't really important because it ain't down to technicality. See, now me, I don't recognize ever a maiden mentally. Right. So this is again, subverting that. It's not to, it's, it's a cheap of mind, right? It's not mm. a physical disposition. So perhaps granny embodies these things mentally as well, mm. but then also physically. Like there's a little bit of, um, and I loathe to use the term, but I can't think of an alternative, like a Mary suing to Granny and that she's this perfect mix of everything. I think yeah. she's a more complicated version of that, but she is like, oh, and she's also the great granddaughter of the most powerful witch and that most powerful witch wasn't that bad actually. And Yeah. Yeah. There's a
1: lot.
0: But yeah, so Granny is one of the virgins in... Um, carpet juggling but of course the more traditional role of the version is played by agnes in Carpe and of course she's subverting this idea of virgins and um vampires which for the record virgins and vampires it is a thing by implication mm. in that it's on their wedding night often mm. um vampires aren't that discriminating in in whose they're blood they want right yeah um it just coincidentally happens to be virgins all the time but i i haven't come across anything that stipulates you must have virgin blood that mm. seems to be something that's picked up but as tansy rainer roberts writes in pratchett's women she writes that upon revisiting Carpe juggling she discovered to her surprise it was now her favorite granny weatherwax book mostly drew to the treatment of agnes writing that vlad spends most of the book trying to seduce agnes and there are implications of a quieter and less showy potential romance between she and oats and um, celebrating romantically desirable fat women in fantasy fiction for the win! Yay! She also writes, Considering the thematic importance of Agnes's weight in Masquerade, it's refreshing that it's not remotely relevant to Jugulum. The only time her fatness is even referred to is when the bitchy female vampire Lacrimosa uses it to insult her, and that tells us a lot more about Lackey than Agnes. And I agree with this, but I still think the fat jokes in this book are a lot. Yeah,
1: there are a lot. It's not just that. It's There's a lot of fat jokes. Yes. Whether it be about Agnes or other stuff. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So I don't know if this is a as positive a portrayal of Agnes mm. as...
1: I guess it's better than Masquerade, but it's not yet
0: good. It's the way defining part of her personality, I guess. Her, her wonderful personality. So I don't know. How did you feel? Because I said one of the things I liked about Masquerade was Agnes, and, and yeah, you yeah. didn't really... You liked her more here?
1: Yeah, I liked her more here. I feel like she's... Like, like I like that Perdita... And her, there's more going on there. There's more discussion. It's funnier. It's, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah.
0: Um, So that's the role of the Virgin. Um, We also have the role of the mother, which I don't really have much to say about, because I think as we said in the last podcast, it's not really, Pratchett really is focusing on the role of the current and the Virgin. The mother's just sort of hanging out in the middle. And this is maybe the book where we get the most mother stuff. Mm -hmm. I think it's where we get the most um, nanny. Uh, But we also get Magrat's transition from maiden to mother. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, with Agnes hearing Perdita think, I don't like Magrat. She's not like she used to be. Well, of course she's not. But she's taking charge. She's not cringing slightly like she used to. She's not wet. That's because she's a mother, Agnes thought. Mothers are only slightly damp. <laughs> um, which is cool, except after this, Magrat completely disappears as a character. Yeah,
1: it's kind of
0: sad. Right? But in future books, she doesn't play a role until the Shepherd's Crown where she... Shows up kind of, but also in this book, I I didn't I liked the idea of Magrat being able to be this kick-ass mother, Mm. except that I just found all she does is like carry around baby change tables and stuff. She doesn't actually do anything in this book.
1: It was it was kind of funny, but otherwise,
0: yeah. She's kind of disempowered, especially after, like, the last time we saw her was when she was kicking ass and taking names in uh, Lords and Ladies. Here, she's just bumbling around.
1: Yeah, and being like, oh, you didn't bring enough nappies. Yeah. Yeah. Like, why
0: didn't she go and grab her armor?
1: Kind of like a... Yeah, he's mocking that idea of motherhood, like, new mothers
0: who are worrying and things like that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Which I think is amusing, but is not balanced with any kind of, yeah, newfound capability. Yeah. Yeah. so it's kind of a step back from McGrath. Um, she definitely doesn't come off as uh, confidently as she did at the end of Lords and Ladies. Conversely, yeah, we have Nanny, who as I think we have the best characterization or the most characterization of Nanny, who's mostly around to just say funny things in the background um, in the earlier books, whereas here she is a driving force. We get a lot more of her own motivations. She's also not right about anything.
1: <laughs> yeah, fair.
0: Every, every decision she makes is wrong. And, like, her and McGrath think that um, Nanny's put her... She's borrowed, like, put her consciousness in the yeah. child or whatever. And, like, for Nanny to know her so well and not get that, I thought was...
1: I did like that she knew what, where she'd be. Like, they go off and they find yeah. the cave and she's like, right, what's up, you know? and
0: Yeah, but then Granny just tells her to piss off and then she's like, oh, I guess we piss off then. Like, mm-hmm. I was sort of annoyed that, like, Nanny seems very lost as a crone, mm-hmm. which... I, I guess, guess it, she's
1: getting getting used to
0: it. Like, well, I think that's part of it is that she is like, I'm not suited to being a crone. Like, I am a mother, and she is such a mother. Like, yeah. she is the most mother.
1: She also has her own kind of identity crisis. Like, she freaks
0: out. Yeah, I, I think it's just her incapable. Like, she is almost as powerful as Granny. I can't remember if it's this book or what this specific quote is, but there's a thing where she says the only reason um, that I'm not the most feared thing is because Granny is. But that's implying that like she's she's formidable as well. But here she seems completely ineffective. Mm. So that kind of bothered me. But yeah, not much to say about the mother because I don't think Pratchett's that interested in the role, really. But yes, what what he's interested here is the role of the crone and Granny's reckoning with that. And as Roberts argues in Pratchett's Women project subverts the female victim gets the better of the vampire trope uh, which I can't actually come up with that many examples of <laughs> I got Anita Blake vampire hunter although she starts that as a vampire hunter same with Buffy right mm. um, I can't actually think of an example of vampire fiction where the female victim triumphs normally they have a male savior or they are already bad ups,
1: yeah
0: maybe I will look through my list and come up with one later but by employing a completely passive method granny literally lies down and lets them drink her blood and allows the result Results to be devastating. This is Robert saying this again. It's one of the best examples I can think of of how the strong woman characters trope has rendered so many types of female strength invisible. Mm. Saying that any female hero who acts other than violent and aggressive while also being sexy is often derided by critics as a weak, passive, or sexist character, while those who act in traditionally masculine, active ways are treated as the only female heroes worth celebrating. Mm. So there's something going on here and that, yes, like when we're talking about Anita Blake, who's like, it's a, a series of books called Anita Blake, Vampire Hunter, um, that come out in the early 90s, proto-Buffy stuff. It's essentially True Blood, but starring Buffy. Okay. Um, and yes, of course, you get Buffy in the middle of the, of the vampires in the middle of the mm-hmm. 90s. But yes, these are women taking on traditional... Masculine roles, right? It's what if a valley girl was Van Helsing? <laughs> right. No, I realised when we were watching the movie, like, the title Buffy the Vampire Slayer is a joke. Like, imagine a vampire slayer named Buffy. Like, that mm. is in itself meant to be a joke. Whereas nowadays, Buffy means vampire slayer. Yeah. It's almost a simulacrum, mm. But not quite. Mm. Not at all. Um, <laughs> so there's something going on here. We're saying that Granny is using her passive power to defeat the vampires, and that makes her more feminine. But then that also inherently says that being passive is a feminine act. So I don't know. You got, you got anything? No. Yeah. So yeah, part of part of carpet juggling is the idea that they're all moving up roles, right? They're all progressing um, with Magra becoming the mother and Nanny and becoming the crone. And that leaves Granny with nowhere to go. So she becomes concerned about cackling, which, again, this is a reference. I didn't have time to hunt down and find out. But somewhere I read... Oh, no, it was um, it was um, a boy Bakhtin, mm. um, who talked about how cackling like, traditionally was applied to gossip. So rather than laughter, it was, like, chattering women.
1: That's right.
0: Yeah. Um, So this idea of Granny being concerned that she's going to start to cackle ties into this idea of, like, don't cackle, don't talk to other women. Right. And that sort of stuff. Yeah, so Bacton writes in Rabelais and His World... The traditions of grotesque realism are even more feasible and narrow in 17th century literature with its dialogue. We have here in mind The Cackle of the Confined Women, a short piece which was published in several installments in 1622 and seems to have been composed by several authors. It presents the usual female gathering at the bedside of a woman recovering from childbirth. In this particular piece, the author eavesdrops on the women's chatter while hiding behind a curtain, and this female cackle is nothing but gossip and tittle-tattle. Hmm. Yeah, so that's this idea where we just have a further layer of sexism too.
1: Yeah, so it's it's associating like witches and women with this like threat of gossip, which men hate. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Part of the threat of witchcraft is that it's not it's a single woman; it's a yeah. community. What if women.
1: they gang up on us? What are right. we gonna do then? Patriarchy. <laughs> yeah. Okay.
0: Captain Villa reads Granny is going off to die as a defence of euthanasia. What? Yeah, she says Pratchett's defense of euthanasia was not only motivated by his own condition. His view had already been apparent in works written before his diagnosis. In Carpe Jugulum for example, Granny states that there are times when you need to show people the way, when a mind is a rage of pain and a body has become its own worst enemy, and when people are simply in a prison made of flesh. Wow. Yeah, I, I wasn't really on board with this, but that's some pretty clear um, pro-euthanasia talk going on there, right? Yes.
1: Yeah, okay. I haven't seen that.
0: Interesting. Hmm. So, But that does lend some something to that this is a broader ideology of Pratchett's, not just a response to his um, Alzheimer's diagnosis. Yeah. I thought that was very specific, but very astute observation. But yeah, so those are the three traditional roles. But as I mentioned before, what Carpet Jugulum is more about is the blending and blurring of these roles, um, creating hybrid roles. So despite starting with the subversion of female wizards in equal rights, as Croft observes, in the dissonance between the archetypal roles of the real, and the real people filling them, real people People, as in fictional characters, mm-hmm. um, Pratchett again reinforces his message that stories cannot be allowed to dictate roles to people. So yes, the hybrid roles we have in Copper Jugulum, or at least as I interpret them, we've got Granny, who is the virgin crone. We've got McGrath, who is a maiden mother, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we've got Nanny, who's the mother crone. Does that... Yeah,
1: that checks out. That
0: checks out, obviously. But as Lorraine Anderson observes in her 2006 master's thesis, "What, uh, Which Witch is Which, the role of Tiffany Aching, which we are going to talk about briefly here, this is... Granny's future apprentice Is more complicated She appears at first To be the waif Yet is too powerful For that So this is like McGrath Being a a wet hen She is more The precursor Of the ice cream stereotype Powerful and unattainable And writes that It will be interesting To see what Pratchett Does with her In future novels If she shows up again Perhaps she will repeat Granny's maiden to crone Transition Mm. Anderson's writing this In 2006 You never got through All the Tiffany No Books Right So This is exactly What happens (laughs) Right It sort of looks like um, from from the start of the Tiffany Aching series, Tiffany is being set up to have a romantic relationship with the um, Baron's son, Roland, who she rescues from the Fairy Kingdom. But that gets abandoned pretty quickly which is
1: cool.
0: Mm. Um, and then she has a later uh, relationship with uh, Simon, I think it is, uh, who wants to become a doctor. Um, but then he moves to like Moorpork and him and Tiffany become too busy to see each other. Mm. So this is what happens with granny and red Yeah. But right. When, when the series ends, right. Granny Weatherwax is old or actually she's dead in the shepherd's crown, right. The series ends with granny Weatherwax dying, but she's, she's a, a virgin crone. Whereas Tiffany Aching at that point, I think is 16 in the the last Tiffany Aching book. So it's just coming into womanhood and everything. So I would say rather than being a virgin crone as Granny is, she is a crone virgin. Okay. Do do you see any meaningful distinction there? I guess you haven't really read the books, but in that she is a young person who has taken on crone-like attributes. Yeah. Whereas Granny is an older archetype that retains the younger archetype's qualities, um, Tiffany Aching is a younger archetype who has achieved the older right so they're sort of the same but it's, it's a flip we'll explore that more when we get to those books um we also have esk reappearing again mm-hmm. um in Shall Wear midnight where i think she's a mother crone right this is the last combination that we don't really have we have nanny but as we said she's not really a successful crone okay whereas esk appears just as like in a single scene but shows up from an alternate future dimension but is an old age lady but has two children with her
1: She's still
0: a wizard? Yes. Okay. Yeah. But they're they're meant to be... I I think I said Simon before was Tiffany's um, love interest. Isn't Simon the name of S' love interest in in the yes. Preston. Preston is uh, the guy who's the doctor who Tiffany... Yeah, no, it's it's implied that S' and Simon moved into a parallel dimension and running up and down the corridors of time having kids. Um, But yeah, she appears very elderly but is raising children because she's out of time, right? Mm, Yeah. Cool. It's pretty cool. I do like I Shall Wear Midnight. Um, but the point of all this is that people are complicated and don't fit archetype archetypal molds, which that's I think true. is what Pratchett's clearly, the statement he's clearly trying to make in this book yeah. as his final statement in the Witcher series. He's played around with these molds and at the end goes, but that's not how it works, right? This is part of the idea of um, stories telling you how to live your life is that you don't have to fit these yeah. archetypes. Yeah, so before we get into the exploration of vampires, there's a couple of things I wanted to talk about, and a couple of things I don't like, because the first of these is the, is the magpies thing. So you didn't get this either. Yeah,
1: because it is it is an English thing, like one for sorry, two for joy, and meant to count them, and like, it is an right.
0: omen. Because I had never heard, and have never heard, with with one exception of this, outside of the context of Carper juggle. but you had. Yeah. Okay, because I just, I was like, what is this magpie thing?
1: Yeah, it's a... It's
0: just a thing. You count the magpies. Right. Mm. And of course I realized there's a joke is count to magpie. Mm. Yeah. I didn't get that. Oh yeah. Yeah. But I did, I did get that now when I, when I wrote it down, I was okay. like, oh, you count the yeah. magpie. But again, I, feel I like guess it was is... like you're
1: meant to count the vampires. I don't
0: know. Yeah. It's just like, it's like a, a Seems mixing. Lazy. Of... <laughs> it does. Um, and it's not really a thing. Yeah. I mean, the, the, association of the vampires with magpies in this book is like a play on um the association with wolves and rats and things in dracula and other vampire stuff okay um there is one other book uh where vampires are specifically said to be able to transform into birds and that is stephen king salem's lot mm-hmm. so there you go there's going to be a lot of this of me just dropping in by the way his, this where is this book yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah um so that's the first of those and also just a, a personal story so when i when i started rereading this in preparation for the podcast like the day I started rereading this because we used to live in Scoresby Mm. where the football team is the magpies because there's magpies everywhere, right? And we used to have like magpies all over our front lawn and Shelly would go out and try and fight them. And I was like, no, Shelly, they're twice your size. They will kill you Mm. with their tongue claws. But so I used to see magpies all the time. then we moved to the new house. Didn't see any magpies. The day I started rereading this book,
1: mm-hmm. I look out
0: the window magpie lands on the balcony and stares at me through the window.
1: One for sorrow.
0: <laughs> one for, that's a vampire, come and fuck me up. <laughs> um, but Pratchett and Simpson actually talk about magpies a bit in the folklore of Discworld, saying that magpies' reputation as thieves is connected to the Italian composer, do you want to do this one?
1: Giochino.
0: Giochino Rossini. His opera, mm-hmm. The Thieving Magpie where a woman is sentenced to death for stealing a silver spoon that was actually stolen by a magpie. Yeah. Um, but Project and Simpson write that it is said that they will even fly down to hell if there is a bag of gold to be found there. To which I respond, who says? Who says? Come on, citations needed. Who says vampire, uh, magpies will fly down to hell?
1: Not me. Mm. Not anything I've looked at and yeah. I know a lot about yeah, and you're hell. You're the hell
0: person. You haven't come across magpies? Never. Not
1: once. Yeah. Not even in Spencer, which is, you know, a big compendium of lots of symbols and what they mean.
0: But yeah, we have this rhyme that you've heard that I haven't. But the oldest known version, Pratchett and Simpson-Clean in the Folklore of Discworld, is from 1780 in Lincolnshire, which has uh, three for a wedding and four for a death.
1: One for sorrow, two for joy, three for a wedding, four for death.
0: Um, wow, you know this. Yeah. It's just baffled me for years. I'm like, what is that weird magpie thing in Carpet Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um... Mm-hmm. But alternate versions given by Pratchett and Simpson in the folklore of Discord include seven for a witch, which I just thought was interesting since we had the equal right seventh son thing. Yeah. Of course, she's the eighth son, so it's eight for a wizard. So maybe seven for a witch, eight for a wizard, who knows?
1: <laughs> Who's um, ever seen eight bagpies
0: also at once? Oh, in, in Scores right. on the Front Lawn, yeah. Okay, sure. Yeah. And the other one they have is uh, five for heaven, six for hell, seven, and you'll see the devil himself.
1: I'm gonna go collect some magpies, I have questions. Right.
0: Well I thought this like you've you've gone down the numerology path, right? Mm. So but this is biblical numerology thing Mm. where five is heaven, six is hell.
1: Seven
0: is Seven is Well seven remember was the
1: elements plus
0: Yeah the Trinity. But I don't know why you see the devil himself. (laughs) No, I mean, I know it because um, of Slipknot's Heretic Anthem, which of course says if you're 555, then I'm 666, because they're badass. (laughs) Alright. I'm not sure where the 7 comes into it. I don't know what 7 means.
1: It's just a number. You know, it's it's the number. (laughs) You know, it's the number everyone picks to mean things.
0: Yes, but last time you had a whole explanation, you had nothing here.
1: No, I think it's just a good number. What? Like if I say pick the best number One of between the best
0: nine digits for sure. <laughs> if
1: I say pick pick the best number, how That's many people like... do you reckon are going to say seven?
0: No, not many. I think people avoid seven because it's like lucky seven. You got to try and be individual.
1: Really? So you think people double guess themselves?
0: There's a whole psychological oh, just game. Just the going. idea of having a favourite number. Mine's nine. Well, so you didn't pick seven. Yeah. I don't know if I have a favourite number these days. I know as a kid my favourite numbers were six and two.
1: Okay.
0: Yeah. So, so no, no sevens. sevens. <laughs>
1: Okay,
0: fair enough. Um, but the only time I've encountered this magpie thing, which was recently, so I've gone 30 years without seeing this magpie 71. thing anywhere else. Well, I read this when I was 30, actually. Um, 30 and a half. There is a reference to magpies in the second Once and Future King book, The Witch in the Wood, from 1939. Okay. Um, in which King Pelinor tells the round table knight, Palamedes he saw seven maggot pies, this is magpies, seven maggot pies flying along like frying pans.
1: How do you fly like frying pan? Surely flying frying pans fly like magpies.
0: Yeah, I don't get it, but that's the quote. Alright, sure, sure, sure. <laughs> Good, yeah. On. Flying along like frying pans, are reciting one for sorrow, two for joy, three for marriage, and four for a boy. So seven ought to be four boys. When fantasizing about having started a family with the Queen of Flanders' daughter, Piggy. So something there about seven ought to being four boys. I thought you might have something to say about um, the magpies and the numerology, but you don't.
1: I might have a theory about why the magpies are important. Because, right, the whole point is that the magpies are trying to subvert kind of superstition. People think they know things about vampires and they're trying to subvert that. And all throughout the book, right. they're counting magpies and they're being like, oh, it's one for, oh, no, it's two for, oh, it's three for, so maybe the there's two different are... different Yeah, they're trying sure to, like, the superstition is at play and people are trying to interpret reality through it, but actually it's not right.
0: That is a really interesting tie-in to something we're gonna to get to shortly about quilting master signifiers. Okay. But yes, that is the only time I've come across this magpie thing outside of Carpajaglan, so...
1: Um, hits. How do I put this in a way that demonstrates my disdain? The the YouTubers... I've said
0: that before. (laughs) (laughs) The
1: YouTubers that be writing the books, whether they be ghostwritten or not, they're back, right? So Zoella has just written a book with someone else and they're they're gothic.
0: I don't know who these people
1: are. People will know. But the first... They're doing it on the magpie thing. So The first one's called One for Sorrow and then Two for Joy and they come up on my radar because my... friend is doing a publishing course and we both scream endlessly about the fact that youtube are a topping the you know the book selling charts at the moment but it's like a gothic blah 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 with about superstition and stuff but yeah the vampire the magpies are there so and yeah it's a thing it's a okay thing. yeah
0: we also have i think this is the third one now an incidental connection perhaps to the vampire tradition just through something randomly Pratchett's put in the book okay so In his article on Dracula and the anxiety of reverse colonization, Stephen D. Arada observes that Van Helsing writes that the vampire is the unavoidable consequence of any invasion. He have followed the wake of the berserker Icelander, the devil begotten hun, the slab, the Saxon, and the Maguire, which is spelled with a Y. So I'm just looking at that word, going that looks like magpie with the in the Pratchett book.
1: And magpies are often known for kind of like pilfering things or
0: getting in the mm-hmm. way.
1: So maybe there's an association between vampires and magpies. Right, that they're Pratcha's stealing things. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah. but the Magyar, which yes is like one little away from magpie with the Y, um, is a member of a people who originated in the Ural's and migrated westward to settle in what is now Hungary in the 9th century A.D. Hungarian vampires. Right, just... that's where Dracula and everything's meant to come from. So so it's just like, it's this idea that Dracula comes from these invading warrior people. Because yeah, there is implication. Because Transylvania is Romania, but I think he's just referring to that general area. Okay. Stoker's sources for, in his notes to Dracula, also include the Reverend W. Henry Jones and Louis L. Knopf's Folk Tales of the Magyars. So there may be... Something. something. There's something. There's something going on there, but I don't know what it is, and it might be incidental. But yes, this is just another way that Pratchett's maybe hit on something to do with Dracula. Yeah, so another thing that may or may not be going on in Carpenter.com, I'm not sure, sure. I'm going to get your expertise on this house. Mm-hmm. is um, this treatment, treatment of gothic, gothic landscape. landscape. Uh, so the influential fantasy critic and one of the uh, editors of the uh, Terry Pratchett Guilty of Literature collection, Farrah um, in her book, uh, Rhetorics of Fantasy, she calls Anne Radcliffe's The Mysteries of Udolpho from 1794, Uh, which you've read and I have not, because it's so big, Um, she calls Udolpho an intrusion fantasy that unusually proceeds as a travel narrative, since instead of answering questions about the landscape with guidebook detail, its guide figure... Now, I'm not sure who this guide figure is. Do you know who the guide figure is? Emily, essentially, the protagonist okay so the, the main character emily, yeah. intends to teach not just about the land but the appropriate sensibility that should be brought to the appreciation of the oh. landscape which runs through the relationship between intruder and intrusion in the gothic and its successes now that you've explained to me that the guide figure is emily i do kind of get that because the one thing i remember from the first like 40 pages of udolpho i read is her going on about the tree constantly Ruff.
1: oh look at the tree it's a hot tree there's yeah. a poetry about the tree i yeah interesting because the gothic initially worked as a travel kind of genre because people couldn't visit europe at the time because of okay. the wars right so and wouldn't be able to essentially for a generation they couldn't go on their um the grand tour that's right. why byron's, byron's was so secure circuitous, yeah. circuitous circuitous um so it like and yeah it allows that kind of like travel through writing that you now get i guess in
0: tv shows and programs right. and documentaries and things
1: so i don't know that unusually is right but yeah Okay, it does proceed as a travel narrative.
0: Yeah, no, I think she's saying that it is a travel narrative. What's What's unusual unusual is that it's it's an intrusion
1: fantasy, fantasy? which
0: Which I I have not not defined here. I don't um,
1: don't think so. I don't know. I'm not sure I'd buy that because the others are the same. And the right. protagonist is the guide and often it's a female and they're, like, they've like they got a sensibility with the landscape, they're having a good time. Right.
0: So the idea is you have someone who's sort of more in touch with nature, telling other people how to treat it and not yeah. violate the natural order, which is something Pratchett's dealt with before. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, the Gothic has this idea. Um, yeah, well, I guess this is where the intrusion thing is coming. as like... I mean, like with uh, Hamlet, right? You've got mm-hmm. the the uncle being the... Unrightful air, so it's this intrusion upon the natural something order. Maybe is
1: corrupt in the state of Denmark.
0: Right, that's the line.
1: Yeah, something like that.
0: Um, so, Mendelssohn argues that for a landscape to become wild, um, as it does in Gothic fiction, mm. what is impressed upon it or dug up is a belief that the civilized exterior is merely a mask. Questions answered in ways that tantalize with hidden knowledge she gives the following example from Udolpho that I thought we could read as a dramatic dialogue. Alright,
1: who's going to be Michael and who's going oh, to be... Oh,
0: I have no idea who any of the characters are. I think I kind of want to be the peasant, but, like, given that you've read the book, I'll let you choose.
1: Yeah, sure, you can be the peasant.
0: And what's my motivation?
1: <laughs> I don't remember. Right. I haven't had a chance to read this scene yeah.
0: over since you gave me the notes. Right. So. Oh, I have no context for, like, right, where so this is story. Alright, so let's read
1: and I'll see what I can remember.
0: Alright, um, so we'll read the different dialogues and also just read the narration yeah. that goes along with your section. Yep, so you start.
1: Which is the way to the chateau in the woods? cried oh, well, Michael.
0: You've got to get more. Ah, oh, okay. You've got to be. We're gothic.
1: <clears throat> Which is the way to the chateau in the woods? cried Michael.
0: The chateau in the woods? exclaimed the pe- peasant. Do you mean that with the turret yonder?
1: I don't know as for the turret as you call it, said Michael. I mean that white piece of a building that we see at a distance. There, among the trees.
0: Yes, that is the turret. <laughs> Why, who are you that are going thither? Said the man with surprise.
1: saint bear Hearing this odd question and observing the peculiar tone in which it was delivered, looked out from the carriage. We are travellers, said he, who are in search of a house of accommodation for the night. Is there any hereabout?
0: None, monsieur. And <laughs> was a <it> monsieur. <laughs> Why a peasant evil? Go on. Because <laughs> <laughs> he's a creepy peasant. Right. None, monsieur, unless you have a mind to try your luck yonder, <laughs> <laughs> replied the peasant, pointing to the woods. But I would not advise you to go there. <laughs>
1: To whom does the chateau belong? I
0: scarcely know myself, monsieur! It
1: is in- uninhabited then? No,
0: not uninhabited. The steward and housekeeper are there, I believe. <laughs>
1: On hearing this, Sona Bird determined to proceed to the chateau and risk the refusal of being accommodated for the night. Right, I know where this is from now. Uh-huh. This is at the start of the book. I told you that's like a hundred pages of them just wandering
0: around a fucking forest. That's I got halfway through that. <laughs>
1: and essentially, that that's it. They're trying to find somewhere safe to rest. Let's let's just make it simple. And that this is them finding the place. Right. On yeah, and they're like the chateau.
0: I had no idea what this is. I just put it in there. I thought it would be fun to read, but I have actually worked it out reading that because. Okay. Weirdly, I've unlocked this through my weird, evil peasant voice, Mm. because I went to a weird, gothic, creepy man by default, right? He's not creepy, he's just a peasant. But, because Mendelssohn then writes, she gives this as an example of scenes that were, quote, imitated and refined yes. by many horror wi- writers and later parodied as in Terry Pratchett's Carpet Juggling. That's why I put it in there, the Carpet Juggling reference. Now, I didn't get it, but having it. just read it, this is the don't go near the castle.
1: Right. Yeah. This yeah, is yeah. people
0: telling people not to go places.
1: Which I read it as just like, it's just saying don't go to the castle. It's not a big dip, but yes, it is a big dip. Right. Yes. Right. Because um, it's, it's like all the other things we've talked about, you know, um, uh, Frankenstein is the scientist. He's turned into the crazy scientist later it it all becomes a parody after the fact like the actual gothic horror things become parodies yes yeah whereas it's a it's a notable thing in all the radcliffe's novels that it's kind of like in shakespeare the peasant is always the like the village idiot kind of thing yeah yeah they're kind of it's, it's a class mockery going on
0: because I, I haven't read it but like this is a safe place they go to in new Delphine? Mm, no at first yeah right So there we go. Dracula's, Udolpho, Pratchett, we brought it all together. Boom! Yes, we also have the gnarly country continuing (laughs) on this idea of the landscape and, and stuff which changes to reflect the mood and attitude of its observer which I went, that's quantum. Pratchett's all about quantum. This is, yeah, landscape that is determined by the observer. However... In her essay on the witches from the Guilty of Literature collection, Karen Sayer considers the Gnarly Country a reflection of the notion that nature comes from culture, and that any landscape we pass through is overlaid with socially constructed ways of seeing, which shape our experience. I guess? Yeah, this is one of those things where it's like, it's there, but I don't know if that's what he was saying. Right, the idea, because it's the scene where Agnes has to, she can't cross it, but Perdita can. Yeah. So I think this is about like self belief rather than nature culture.
1: You're right. I'm thinking of the time I was stranded for a night in Slovakia and how however... I. <laughs> <laughs> there
0: was a peasant going, home <laughs> let to the chateau with the turrets.
1: It was terrifying, but it probably wasn't, you know. I was projecting um, both me and culturally, you know? Yeah.
0: So, yeah, not much to say there. I mostly wanted to bring that up uh, just so we could do a dramatic reading of Udolfo, but um, we, it, we actually unlocked something about the text. Method, and when people ask what my methodology is, I'm like, well, me and Alice are going to read it through it in funny voices, (laughs) and we'll see what happens. (laughs) Yeah, okay. So that's just some stray observations and things. Our last thing before we get onto vampires and something going a bit more, a lot more technical is I want us to look at this idea of modernization and progress. Um, So in his 2014 book, Fantasy, Politics, and Postmodernity, Andrew Raymond, who we've brought up a few times previously on the podcast uses carpet to illustrate fantasy's capacity to present theoretical conceptualizations in a purified state exploring the novel's attempt to quote quilt ideology ideological space with a master signifier all right well quilt simply means to establish itself as the dominant or default interpretation so i'm not sure of Quilt, I didn't, like, read his part where he defines quilt. I worked it out from the context. But, like, I guess this is, like, blanketing. It smothers it. It collapses it. I'm not really sure. Okay. It becomes um,
1: the dominant thing. Yes.
0: Right. So Raymond gives the example of liberalism as an unquilted signifier, right? Without context, the ideology of being a liberal is ambiguous, right? You could be a social economic. liberal. Oh, you yeah, could yeah, be an yeah, economic yeah, okay. liberal in Australia, right? You could be a political liberal. Yeah. But So, yes, it relies on the context around it to tell you what that ideology is. Mm-hmm just saying I'm a liberal is meaningless. So to become a master signifier is to become the default interpretation, right? Quilting or fixing the ideological field of meaning. Right. So just like what what is the dominant definition that wins out? And this is why I brought up before when you said there's all the different variations of the uh, magpie rhyme. Yeah, yeah. Right? So to quilt the magpie rhyme would to say, this is the magpie rhyme. This is the definitive version and all the other ones are.
1: And I guess that's how superstition works. It's like, it, yeah, right. they're trying to quilt something.
0: Um, so a lot of technical language for what is a rather clear concept when you just explain it. So in Carpa Jugulum, Raymond says the floating signifier that is up for grabs is the heavily loaded term progress.
1: Ah, yeah. All right. yeah. Yeah, right? Bye bye. Yeah. I'm with
0: you. Um, with both Verence and the Magpies seeking to break with a stupid and superstitious past uh, and drag their respective communities into the year of the fruit bag. Uh, 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 that's the noise I made when reading this too. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah, all right. Nah, I don't need to go near the turrets. <laughs> he compares the cultural conditioning of the Magpie children with Verence's similarly trying to condition his daughter via modern parenting techniques, right?
1: One of my favourite bit, b- bits is when they're talking about how variance has been trying to improve things and that everyone shouts and is like, yeah, great, cool, yeah, ooh, and then just goes about doing it the same way. <laughs> this is very funny. <laughs> Lankra doesn't change.
0: No. And the idea of modernisation is something that's intrinsically intertwined with the vampire genre since at least Dracula, mm. right? It's probably... Present earlier, but Dracula is the one that really goes. No, this is old versus new, old world versus new. World, yeah. Right. So yes, yeah, so as a writer observes in his article on um, Dracula and reverse colonization, while Gothic novelists had traditionally displaced their um, set time or locale, later Gothic writers such as Stoker root their action firmly in the modern world, playing off tensions between the new and the old world. And indeed, Dracula was praised by reviewers for its up-to-datedness upon release. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. All right. <laughs> I mean, I, it seems silly now, but its central yeah, premise yeah, is Victorian on. modernism and enlightenment thinking being threatened by old world yeah. supernatural savagery. Um, I see it
1: and the gothic being a exact yeah, exa- yeah.
0: Which is ultimately defeated by Van Helsing's modern scientific methodology, right? He goes and researches vampires, comes back and goes, here's what we know from reading all the vampire fiction, which is what Pratchett is mm. subverting in Jugulum*, because Van Helsing is somehow able to go research vampires and come back with a, co- a coherent vision of them which there probably was at that point. Mm. Um, whereas after Dracula, it's splintered into so many different interpretations that you now can't apply this methodology. Um, and, yeah, on top of this research stuff, they also, the way they find him is they go about it systematically, tracking down his addresses and ruling mm. things out and cornering him. So and
1: it's, stuff. It's, it's empirical. It's, yeah, it's research, yeah.
0: yeah. Um, yes, it's the empiricism versus superstition. Yeah. Again, we have playing off Get in... Him. Um, yeah, conversely, as Avrata observes, Dracula's physical mastery of his British victims also begins with an intellectual appropriation of their culture, which allows him to delve the workings of their native mind. Right? So when Harker first gets to uh, Castle Dracula, he observes Dracula's expertise in life and customs and manners. And Harker, Harker is, like, he's there as the um, real estate, the, estate but the, but Dracula's essentially, essentially brought him there to study him, to study him, and, to test study him and test how, how, how well he blends, he blends, blends into British, British society. society. Yeah. yeah, So Dracula is also a Mm. Dracula is also seen reading an English Bradshaw's guide which is train timetables which both the Harkers, Jonathan and Mina are also obsessed with mm. which is foreshadowing in that they track Dracula down through the tables eventually um, but it's also a symbol of modernisation Which Which, in the Victorian era, right, steam power and trains trains are the coming technology technology that is the paradigm paradigm shifting shifting thing. thing. Um, It's also also the paradigm shift at the end of the Discworld series with raising steam when trains get introduced to Discworld, so there's something going on there. As a writer observes, Stoker also continually draws our attention to the affinities between Harker and Dracula, as in the offsided scene where Harker looks for Dracula's reflection in the mirror and sees only himself, which is something very obvious but still makes me go, oh, nice. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> and also, also maybe explains like why vampires don't have reflections because outside of Dracula, Dracula it's like kind of not a thing. Mm. It's in some things, so but it's not, not there as often as you think. And, and I don't, don't really know, know why it's there, but then I'm like, oh, it's, so it's there. there so Harker could look, look in the mirror and see himself. Yeah, I think a lot of people do just read it as this old world versus new world thing, but it's like the old world is taking on the new world, which is what's happening in Carpa Juggalum, right? Yeah. Yeah, the new school vampires in Carpe Jugulum are actually acting... Like yeah. Dracula. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Which I thought, yeah, it was cool, right? Cool. yeah. Similarly, as Raymond argues, Project binds Verence and the Magpires together in language through their similar references to progress and modernity, both referring to a coming new world order and changing times signalled by the sunlight of the dawning millennium in the vampire's case and a glow that marks the rising sun in Verances. So that progress in Carpe Juggling, um, Raymond says, is devoid of any meaning. It is unfixed, empty, beyond that which is imputed to it through the frameworks of inferences, and enlightened progress or the vampire's fascist progress. Mm. And that although they seek similar goals, their methods are very different. Vampires forcing their changes upon their subjects while its merely offers, right? And this is sort of Pratchett saying true enlightened progress is slow, right? You were talking about how they like the idea, but they don't do anything about it. Yeah. But we can't resort to treat people like objects and things, as Granny would say. Otherwise, you end up with escrow where people are treated by vampires like cattle. So it's the idea that you can only offer people things. You can't force it on them.
1: You can't mandate a vaccine in Lankra. <laughs> no, you
0: couldn't.
1: No, you couldn't.
0: <laughs> yeah, the only... Um, I was bitching about this uh, t- <laughs> on our work- walk earlier. But the only uh, reference to something similar like this, like the vampires voluntarily taking attacks on the people, <laughs> actually comes in the 2004 film van helsing uh where vampires only kill twice a month and van helsing coming in and killing the vampires upsets the balance and brings revenge upon the town Mm. so i mean that is an example of something that happens after *Carpe Jugulum*. so it's possible that that scene was influenced by it i'm not sure escrow also also reminded me though of os from leguin's 1973 short story the ones who walk away from omos are you familiar with this yeah, house? Yeah, I know the no, story. Because, yeah. Do you want to explain the, the story?
1: It's a town where no one feels pain and everything's awesome. And it's because there's a child who's, like, kept in a cave or something and feels the pain for everyone. Yep. And her name is Omelus and everyone... I think the
0: town is called Omelus. Oh,
1: right. And there's a kid who feels all the pain. Yeah. And essentially, by looking away, everyone else is able to be pain-free. What am I yeah. missing? There's a bit I'm missing.
0: Ah, uh, you're missing the bit where people walk away. <laughs> people <laughs> it's it's at <laughs> the top. <tar>. Thank
1: you. <laughs> yeah,
0: Ovalos is the ideal utopian community where everyone's happy, but and it there's it's no the mechanics to it, right? It. Yeah. It's complete allegory. But the only way they're able to achieve this is if a single child is permanently tortured, and everyone knows this is happening, but if they don't say anything about it, everyone else keeps getting to be happy. So it's you know the greater good utilitarian mm-hmm. stuff, right? Greatest good for the greatest number. And yes, the ones who walk away from almost the title of the story are the people who decide, no, this is wrong. That's
1: right. Yes, normal, that's the right. important bit.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's, it's very basic um, utopian, like, you know, someone's utopia is someone else's dystopia sort of thing. But yeah, it reminded me of that where everyone in Escrow is like, well, everything's fine if we just sacrifice children to the vampires once a month, <laughs> right? Yeah. But like, maybe that is better than... <gasps> The magpies coming in and murdering everyone.
1: From a utilitarian mm-hmm. perspective.
0: Maybe it's not one or the other, because as Granny Weatherwax says, there's no greys, only white that's got grubby. I like that. Right, but this is also the third or fourth example to that weird white knight story. But I, So I really do think this is a thing with Pratchett. I think he's specifically referencing the story over yeah. and over again. It also recalls Granny's debate with Mrs Goggle, which is abroad. If you remember, she told her... You can't make things right by magic. You can only stop making them wrong. We're the kind of godmothers that gives people what they know they really need, not what we think they ought to want. umbrella mm-hmm. has got to find out for herself with no interference from anyone. No more stories, no more godmothers, just people deciding for themselves, for good or bad, right or wrong. So to me, that's Verit's going, here's sewage systems. You can have them, but I'm not going to make you have them. Whereas the vampires are going, get some sewage systems up here. <laughs> Which also means, like we were talking about the poor treatment of Miss Goggle and which is abroad, she's now the vampire analogue. Wow. Although there, there is a different context here, because right? we were very critical of Granny saying this in that book, but that's because they were going into someone else's kingdom and telling them how to run it. Um, so there was an imperial colonization context here, whereas here Granny is talking about her own kingdom. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, the other thing here is it's freedom is the unquoted.
1: So right? What does that actually mean? Yeah, okay. okay. Is it
0: freedom from or freedom mm-hmm. to? Yeah. right? which I'm sure we could go into that, but I don't want to. Yeah, so I don't think Pratchett's going quite as far as openly engaging with Lacanian theory and philosophy, like Raymond suggests, but his engagement with subtle themes here, I think, is far more deliberate than the class stuff I was pushing in Masquerade. That was something I was reading into it that I think Pratchett stumbled on, incidentally. I think here, Pratchett probably isn't thinking about quilting, um, but he is thinking about this what,
1: what duality of progress mean, and, and freedom. yeah. yeah.
0: Cool. Um, so that is everything in this book that is not vampires. So I'm going to go away and write the second part of this podcast and we will be back to discuss the history of vampires as a literary type. doo do And we're clear. That's all for this episode of Unseen Academicals. There'll be another one along in a month, but if you can't wait until then, you can sign up to our Patreon page and get all the episodes a full month in advance, along with any bonus episodes or specials that we end up doing. If you're after more of us, Alice hosts her own podcast of The Devil's Party, which traces the development of the Satanic Hero throughout Romantic and Gothic literature. Links to a bibliography for today's show, along with a fully referenced and footnoted transcript, should be available in the episode description. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for some amusing outtakes. Get the fuck out of here, Giacchino Rossini.
1: <laughs> that one's for Maddie.